If you will, would you make your way in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Let's begin by reading chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if any you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and the glory is in their shame. With minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enabled Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, of whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my Beloved. Have you ever had someone come to you, look you straight dead in the face and say, who do you think you are? In fact, that was a phrase I often heard from my father. Being challenged by that question, he undoubtedly was calling me to reconsider and to rethink who I thought I was. He was reminding me that my perception of myself was either inflated or distorted or incorrect altogether. It was meant to create in me uh, a, a provocation to think and to reconsider who I actually thought I am. As I read this portion of Scripture, I am doubtably confronted with that question ringing in my mind and my heart. Who do I think I am? As my daughter now enters her senior year, And as we are growing ever so close to trying to pick out a college, we have filled out more forms than we can possibly ever imagine. In fact, it was easier to buy a house, certainly easier than uh, it was easier to buy a car. Do they even question you when you buy a car anymore? All I did was sign my name, give them my uh, social security number, and they said, you can have the car. Really? It's that easy? And one of the questions that I was confronted with in almost all of the forms was this. It was a question to ask me to verify my citizenship here in the United States of America. In one way or another, asking me, am I truly a citizen of the United States of America? And can I prove that? I take my American citizenship very seriously. 
I appreciate all that I have been afforded by living in this wonderful nation. Though I am truly concerned concerning the future of our nation and the direction in which we appear to be going, I am still privileged to have lived in this nation. But this question about citizenship, in conjunction with my personal time of devotion with the Lord that morning, caused me to reconsider something even greater. Asking me the question, who do I think I am? God challenging me to consider, if you are so serious and committed and devoted to your citizenship here in the United States of America... Let you not forget that first and foremost, you're a citizen of heaven and the kingdom of God. This does not alleviate my earthly responsibilities, but puts my earthly responsibilities in true perspective. It allows me to see my earthly responsibilities as the Lord sees my earthly responsibilities. It challenges me to think of things not only from my personal perspective, but the perspective of God. And often, His perspective is not my perspective. Again, challenged by the text that it lays before us this morning, I was challenged in my heart to ask the question of verifying my citizenship, not only here in the United States of America, but also my citizenship in heaven. As I bring your attention back to the book of Philippians, I ask you the question this morning to reconsider your citizenship in heaven. To remind yourself that you are a subject of the kingdom of God which is unfolding before us and at his return will consummate and it will climax. We are part of something that is much bigger than we could have ever imagined or anticipated. And as a subject of the kingdom of God, I have great responsibility to represent my king properly. Not in the ability of myself, but in the ability of the Holy Spirit in whom my king has given me to empower me, but yet I still carry a responsibility. And we begin with Paul saying here in verse 12, if you will look with me, He says, not that I have already attained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brother, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Paul knew that he was a work in progress. Paul knew that he had not fully yet been conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. In verse 10 of this letter, as he's writing to the church there in Philippi, a colony of Rome, he's writing to believers that are now becoming persecuted for their faith because they will not subject their allegiance to Caesar and call him Lord. 
And as a result of this rejection of Caesar or the declining to bend the knee and to call him Lord, they are now being persecuted for their faith in Christ. They are beginning to suffer for their faith in Christ. And Paul said that in his own personal life, those things that he attained as a Jewish Pharisee, he has left behind for all that he has gained in his knowledge of Christ. And part of the conformity into the image of Christ was to suffer as Christ has suffered. Knowing that he has not yet been brought in that full conformity and not had suffered to the same degree in which Christ had suffered going to the cross and dying on behalf of mankind. He says here in verse 10, I should say 9, In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him having a righteousness, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, that I may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in death, that I by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. In the ESV translation, the translators have added the word this after the word obtained. It is truly obtained or attained. He he doesn't specify what he is exactly referring to, but it is truly obvious that what he is saying, that I have not yet been perfected. I have not yet arrived at that place of complete sanctification, that complete uh, conformity into the image of God. But I press forward on to that. Why? Because of all that Jesus Christ has done on my behalf. This is only my reasonable response, Paul is saying, that I push ahead, regardless of where it takes me. Regardless of the manner in which people react to the sanctification that is going on, to the conformity that is going on into the likeness of Christ, I must press on that I may fully, fully experience and demonstrate my allegiance to my King through the suffering that I may endure. As Paul saw himself correctly, He was dissatisfied with where he was at in his walk with the Lord. That dissatisfaction caused him to press on. And it challenged me and caused me to consider, have I become complacent in my relationship with Christ? Have I become apathetic? Have I allowed the cares of this world, have I allowed the sins of my flesh to remain rather than to rid myself of it all and to live full on for the glory of Jesus Christ? Oh, I could, certainly could say to myself and convince myself that after 30 years, if anybody, oh, if anybody had attained that perfect state of righteousness, after 30 years it has to be me. And then I read a book who someone who has been a Christian 40 years and said they are no closer now than they were before. (laughs) I'm not there yet. See, Paul saw himself as a work in progress, but yet he wasn't discouraged by that. He leaned forward to press on, to allow the Spirit of God, to allow the Word of God to have the perfect work in his life that he may glorify Jesus because of all that Jesus has done 
for him. I like what Spurgeon says. He said, But while the work of Christ for us is perfect, and it were were to be presumptuous to think of adding to it, the work of the Holy Spirit in us is not yet perfect. It is a continual carrying on from day to day and will need to be continued throughout the whole of our life. And so what Paul did to allow himself to push forward, notice with me, he realizes that he is not yet perfect, but yet he presses on to make it his own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. And he says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own yet, but one thing I do, notice this, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Often, if we are going to move forward in our Christian life, we have to let the past go. We have all failed in some way, shape, or form, and we can allow that failure to seize our further development and conformity into the image of Jesus Christ. We can wallow in our self-pity and stay in that place. Or we can learn from it and move on. But what is equally as dangerous is remaining in the glory times of the past. The high points. Thinking, oh, it's only downhill from here. Oh, you remember when it was so good and was so wonderful and, and it'll never be like that again. And that can stifle your growth just as quickly. For Paul, undoubtedly, it was his heritage and his pedigree. Remember what he said, I'm a, a child of Benjamin, of the tribe of Benjamin, and I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, and his pedigree and his heritage, that, he says, is no longer important to me. He could say about his accomplishments in taking the gospel into the Gentile communities that he already has and been incredibly fruitful, but he says, no, I'm going to let that go. He could say, oh, but I killed Christians before becoming one myself, and therefore what right and how do I deserve to go on any further? But yet he says, no, I'm going to let it go. I'm not going to wallow in the past one way or another. That's the only way that I can turn my head and look forward and press on to the finish line. What is holding you back? Paul says, I've forgotten those things. Today, maybe it is your turn to forget these things. Not forget them in the sense of learning from them, but no longer allowing them to hold you back, getting right with God and being freed from whatever that may be and moving forward in Him, that forward progress. Everything I read here is forward progress because He had not yet obtained Paul knew that this was not something he was going to obtain in his lifetime, and yet he did not grow discouraged because of that. Well, I'll never be perfect in this lifetime, so so why, why should I continue forward? Paul says, no, but because of all Christ has done for me, I am going to do all that I can for Christ. And MacArthur said, obviously pursuing the prize of spiritual perfection begins with the dissatisfaction with one's present spiritual condition. So we are challenged this morning to take a look 
at our hearts and ask ourselves, do we understand that we still have a ways to go? Verse 14. I press on, he says, towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Paul undoubtedly here is once again imagining the Greek games. He is imagining the athletes competing. He is using it as an illustration, flavoring the words in which he chooses to help his readers understand, as those would in Philippi would quickly understand, that the prize of the upward call. He doesn't specify which prize he is referring to. Is it the resurrection? Is it the standard of righteousness that he desires to see within himself? Is it that moment that all of us stand before the bema seat of Christ and give an account and are rewarded accordingly for how we have conducted our lives in Jesus? But that's what he states I am pushing forward to. And I am moving forward in that regard. He states to us very clearly that this is the mindset of one who is truly mature in Jesus Christ. One of the great ambiguities to the current Christian community in the United States of America is the definition of what a mature believer is. Some believe that a mature believer is simply one who has gained a certain uh, accumulation of head knowledge. They can recite passages backwards and forwards, and they can do so in various languages. They can quote church fathers and scholars as if one would seem as if they were reading it out of the book itself. But the Bible clearly articulates that maturity is found in the depth of love that an individual has for God and for one another. And here the Bible says that maturity is also discovered in the mindset of one who is going to continue pushing on for the prize of the upward call. In light of all that God has done for you, as Paul stated in Romans 12, 1 and 2, this is our only response, this is our only reasonable worship, that we respond in the manner in which we surrender ourselves completely before the Lord and say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done, and whatever you have for me is what I want from you in my life. Pushing forward to that goal, as one stated, the winner in those games was called to a place where the judge sat in order to receive his prize. Paul here was referring to that ultimate place that we stand in salvation in God's presence and receive the rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. I like what one wrote. He says, The reason we have such an easygoing, complacent Christianity today is because we do not want to know the truth, and we are not willing to obey the demands of ideal Christianity. 
God is willing to show us the truth to those who are willing to follow it. Many of us, as Paul states here, as a mature believer will think this way, in verse 16 he says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Be true to what you know to be true about God and His Word. Apply it in your everyday life. Practice it in your everyday life. Allow it to conform your thinking in your everyday life. But what we are concerned about is someone who would look at the Scriptures and says, I want to know no more because I don't want to be accountable or responsible for that. Right there, you are losing the race. It is so important that as we grow and as we understand that we are works in progress before the Lord, let us understand that we should be responsible for what we do know to be true of the Scriptures. Living that out in our Christian character. And in verse 17, he reminds us of who we are. Brothers, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told you and tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the lord jesus christ who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself it is amazing to me that paul would state eight times in five letters imitate me The word imitate there is following one as you were miming them. You know, you were uh, just doubling them, mirroring them in everything that they did. Have you ever had one of those experiences where you're dealing with someone and they get so frustrated in the conversation that they just repeat everything you say? I know you are, but what am I? Paul says, imitate me. Look at my life. The New Testament hadn't been complete yet. This is one of the early letters. Paul is writing from prison here. Imitate me, he says. But you're Paul, you're in prison. Imitate me. Paul, you're suffering. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul, you could be executed. Imitate me. Eight times in five letters he says the same thing. Paul, you've been stoned. Imitate me. Paul, you've been rejected. Imitate me. That's what he's saying. Why? Because that imitation of Paul was to demonstrate the reality of the Christian life. People should know of your citizenship in heaven not only by what you say, but by what you do. How you conduct your life. How you walk through this world, how you interact with others, how you make decisions in your life. People should say, I see that they are a citizen of heaven. 
Because then he contrasts it with these false teachers that undoubtedly have come now into Philippi. Most likely Jewish individuals who want to make these Gentile Christians Jews first and then allowing them to become Christians by observing all the recommendations, I should say, requirements of the law, including circumcision. But Paul says, stop. I was there. I was a Pharisee of Pharisee. I was a Jew of, of, of Jews, and yet I had to count that all lost for the sacred, blessed knowledge of Christ. Don't go there. Imitate me, he says. Keep your eyes not only on me, but those who walk according to my example. Paul at one place writes that you and I as Christians should be living epistles that the world can read and see Christ in us. Why? Because there are those who are living in contrary. He calls them enemies of the cross. One who not only just simply denies, but lives in a denial state of the reality of the cross. And he says their end is destruction. Uh, Their God is their bellies. They're living for their self-indulgence and for their personal appetites. They glory in their shameful acts before others and their minds are consistently on earthly things. I argue that an apathetic, complacent Christian positions themselves, maybe unintentionally, but as a result, as an enemy of the cross. Think about that. That's a Harvey statement. How can I be apathetic? How can I be complacent knowing that my Lord and Savior died on my behalf? That he subjected himself to his own creation and was humiliated to the point of the cross. Do we then not, in our apathetic state, begin to live for our personal appetites and our own self-indulgence? Do we not glory in shameful acts of temporal prosperity rather than internal glory? Have not our minds then embraced the earthly things rather than living for eternity? And then Paul reminds them of this incredible fact. You are a citizen of heaven. You are a subject within the kingdom of God. For these individuals in Philippi, that would have rang to their basic core. Why? Because they were a colony of Rome. They prided themselves in being a colony of Rome. They had all the benefits of being a colony of Rome. And they prided themselves on it. But Paul says you have a higher calling. One that will continue to push you forward in your Christian life. One that will cause you to sacrifice rather than to self-indulge. One that will cause you to lay down your will and to take up his. One that will love someone who hates you and despises you. He says, this is the citizen of heaven. And as a citizen of heaven, we wait eagerly for the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
believing that he can return at any moment. I don't know about you, but that in and of itself motivates me to move forward, to examine myself and ask myself, have I become complacent in my Christian walk with the Lord? Have I allowed my citizenship here in America to overwrite my citizenship of heaven? I'm not saying that we should ever be irresponsible with our citizenship here in the United States of America, but let us be clear. The moment we bowed our knee and placed our faith and trust in him and called him king, what do you think that meant? He is king and I am his subject. The Bible goes on to describe it a little bit more graphically. He is king. I'm his servant. Oh, it doesn't stop there. He is king and Lord, and I am his slave. That's a proper perspective. That's the perspective Paul had. But notice what he says. As one wrote, I like what William Barclay says. One paraphrase of citizen that is in heaven reads like this. We have our home in heaven. And here on earth we are a colony of heaven's citizens. Paul is saying just as the Roman colonists never forgot that they belonged to Rome, you and I must never forget that you and I are both citizens of heaven. And your conduct must match your citizenship. And so in verse 1 of chapter 4, as the paragraph concludes, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand thus firm in the Lord, my beloved. As things were beginning to change for those dear Christians in Philippi, as they were confronted with the reality of denying the precious citizenship of Rome by being unwilling to call Caesar Lord. I know this is the parallel because the word that Paul uses for Lord here in our text in verse 20 is the same word that the Greeks uh, used to describe the lordship of Caesar over their citizenship. He's encouraging them that at the moment you are confronted with the reality of having to deny Caesar as Lord, understand that you are truly a citizen of heaven and you await your Lord's return and that is so much farther greater than what you can ever gain by simply being a citizen of Rome. That's what he's saying here. But he says, stand firm. From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, there is a phrase that he used numerous times that often is so overlooked by we here in America who are Christians. From the very beginning of his ministry, he proclaimed the coming of something so significant that it was the motivation for us to repent. As those words were proclaimed by the mouth of the Lord after his baptism, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Jesus at that moment ushering in something that was so desperately waited by the Jewish people. However, though, it came in a form that they were unfamiliar with and were not prepared to embrace. This 30-year-old carpenter from Galilee is now proclaiming that the kingdom of God is here. What? They believed that it would be simply ushered in by the uh, renewed Messiah who'd come in the form of David and take by force Israel back from their oppressor, the Romans. And Jesus then heralds in his humility a simple carpenter from Nazareth one who would no, no one would take seriously in the upper echelons of the educational system there in Jerusalem. Both despised by scribes and Pharisees alike, he proclaims, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. As his ministry went on, he went on to describe what this kingdom is all about. He did it in the form of parables. Why? To allow the simple to understand this incredible, lofty truth of what has now been established through the coming of Christ. He said to those people very simply, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed which is going to start out so insignificantly in the grand scheme of the history and the annals of the world. This one event through a 30-year-old carpenter there in Israel 2,000 years ago is a mere speck on the entirety of history, the history of man, is it not? And like a mustard seed, the smallest of all the seeds, yet something's going to grow from it that's going to be so expanse that even the birds of the air can feed from it and nest in it. He says it's going to be like leaven, and this is one of the cases where it's in a positive manner. It's going to permeate so vastly all of society from this point on. And where do you go in the world that you are not confronted with the reality of Christianity? It's like a treasure in a field, he says. Though it doesn't look so appealing on the surface, one must sell all at any cost to obtain it. Think about it. It didn't come in the splendor of the arrival of the second David in the manner in which the Jewish people thought that it would. A Messiah rising up to deliver them from their oppressions. It was a simple carpenter that was rejected by everyone except the simple and and the... Lowly, the prostitutes and the sinners. But he says, at all costs, do whatever you can to obtain it. And once you see that the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl, he says, you will become so joyful that again, you will do all that you can to obtain it at any cost, whatever it matters. The kingdom of God is like a net, he says, and at the end, it will keep all accountable as it sweeps across this world before the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It will gather in its nets and at the end of it all, the righteous from the unrighteous will be separated. He says it's like a master of a house bringing out a treasure of old and new things founded on the foundations of the Old Testament and then garnished with the mysteries of the new. The kingdom of heaven has arrived. The master of the house who went into the field. 
as God demonstrates the kingdom of heaven, God will exercise his freedom to give the blessing of the kingdom to whoever he chooses, from Jews to Gentiles. This is what he says. Let us understand the New Testament 67 times talks about the kingdom of God. 53 times alone in the Gospels. And 32 times in Matthew's Gospel, he calls it the kingdom of heaven, which we have now learned that we are a citizen of. Whatever Jesus started, the kingdom of God here on earth, that will culminate in his return, we are part of. And he told us to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And it came in such a manner that no one anticipated it. And of course questioned its arrival thoroughly and rejected it openly. He said it is easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter into it. However, the poor are going to flood into it, he said. And that those who, dis- who are despised by society will be welcomed gloriously in it, but th- those who are clothed in false piety and self-righteousness will be rejected. Three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, got a sneak peek, a preview, as they walked up on top of the mountain and saw Christ transform before them. And what did they say when they were up there after seeing that? We don't want to go back, Lord. Let us just stay right here. It's going to spread like the seed which is thrown into a field, and God is going to give life to the message of the kingdom of God. It has to be embraced, though, by the faith of a child. Childlike faith, embracing it. Many are near, but have not entered, he says. And Jesus said to his disciples in closing, I will not drink again until we are all there, present in my kingdom. That kingdom has already begun. We are part of that kingdom. He is our king. He is our Lord. And our citizenship is in heaven. But Jesus said very clearly in John's gospel, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. By coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ, allowing the grace of God to open your eyes and open your hearts and being born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. As citizens of heaven, I've discovered that we have many responsibilities. As a citizen of heaven, we are under the government of heaven, first and foremost. Okay, let's get that right. First and foremost, as a citizen of heaven, I am under the government of heaven. Though that does not negate me from my earthly responsibilities, first and foremost, I am accountable to Christ who has saved me. Secondly, as citizens, we share in the heaven's honors. We are called heirs as we have been adopted into the family of God. And an inheritance has been placed for us there. As a citizen of heaven, we have property rights in heaven. Jesus goes to prepare a place for us that where he is, we may be also. As a citizen, we enjoy the pleasures of heaven, knowing that here at moments in our lives, we can taste heaven in a distance, but one day we'll embrace it fully. 
It says in heaven, we love heaven and feel attached there. Our loyalties. As a citizen of heaven, we keep in communication with our native home in prayer. When I go to pray, I often remind myself before doing so that I am entering into the throne room of God in heaven. That I am sitting down with my heavenly father, actually kneeling down before my heavenly father, and I am talking to him directly through Christ, who's made it possible for me to boldly go into the throne room of God. If you allow yourself to understand that reality, I cannot believe that you would be not more motivated and compelled to pray. It isn't just us talking in an empty room and throwing our prayers against a, a, a drywall ceiling. We are entering into the throne room of God. Let us be honest with the, about that. I can't get my kid to listen to me. But my dad, my heavenly fathers, are always ready to listen to me and to interact with me. We are a work in progress. Let us not become apathetic and complacent, but like Paul, let us push on. I think that we have made a mistake in understanding our sanctification. It is a work of the Spirit through the Word of God in our life. But notice the words that Paul used to describe this walk of conformity into the image of Jesus Christ. He uses words like labor and strive. He uses words like run and compete. He uses words like fight the good fight. There's effort involved, isn't it? Denying ourselves takes effort that we don't muster in and of ourselves, but given to us by grace through the Holy Spirit that we may endure the temptation, trial, and trouble that we face. Let us not become apathetic. Let us understand that as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, we carry an awesome responsibility. For there are people that may only see us and determine the validity of Christ based upon their experience with us in their life. And whatever happens from our view, Christ is in control. Whatever happens from my perspective, Christ is in control. And he demonstrated that. God validated that by raising Christ up on the third day. And I don't have to be concerned. But let us press forward. Let us strain forward. The picture is that of a runner coming to the end and not giving in, not taking a step backwards, not slowing down, but pushing, driving ahead, and then pushing out their chest as one just an inch across that line before someone else. That's the picture that Paul paints for us in our Christian lives. Why? Because we're a citizen of heaven. Why? Because this is the proper response for all that Christ has done for us. Christ did not save us for us to live selfish, self-seeking, fleshly lives. That wasn't the purpose of it. Because he drew us out of the darkness into the light. He drew us out of death into life. 
He gave his life for our sinful life that we may have his life in return. I ask you, how else shall you worship your God? How shall you run the race as a citizen of heaven? Because I ask you, who do you think you are?